Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Now, if I was to say, who would you rate as the greatest female vocalist of all time? I'd probably get a few different answers. Some of you, it might be Mariah Carey, you're thinking, you know what? There just still ain't been no one that can really touch those notes like Mariah Carey. Some of you like Mariah Carey now. Celine Dion, man. Some of you like, nah, you know what? Old school Whitney. Uh, she's not on it like she used to be anymore, but no, when Whitney was on form, you couldn't touch Whitney Houston. Yeah? If I was to say to you, who would you reckon as the greatest gospel female vocalist of all time? Some of you probably start struggling to, to, to name one. Mahalia Jackson. Hey, taking it back. We need to bring them up to date, bruv, because you know what? They're still struggling for contemporaries. Some of you might say Yolanda Adams. Kim Burrell. I knew that one was going to come up. Kim Burrell. Now, there was someone who mentored Kim Burrell. I don't know if anyone knows who that is. If I said Vanessa... Vanessa Bell Armstrong. You listen to Vanessa Bell Armstrong and then listen to Kim Burrell, you can, you can see the, the, the mentorship that's happened. So Kim Burrell is just the new Vanessa Bell Armstrong in my books. And for me, she would be the one that's like right up there. Some of you are saying, who are they? Talk to me about CC Winans, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But whoever you might say, we could all appreciate and recognize that to some extent or another, our lives have been encouraged, we've been maybe even impressed or blessed by the, the work of female vocal artists within our respective generations, whoever that might be for us. Today, I'm considering the beginning of a mini-series called Female Vocals in the Life of the Church. Female Vocals in the Life of the Church. And it has nothing to do with singing. You see, in the same way that ladies have contributed vocally as singers, even to the life of the church, let's just forget the world at large and, you know, artists generally, but even to the life of the church, many of us can testify to our lives being um, encouraged, being touched, being inspired by various female vocals that are gifted and the Lord has used. There is a sense in which, apart from singing, the same ought to be true within its right parameters. So 
female vocals in the life of the church. The contribution of women vocally to the life of the church is something that God has designed and ordained within a particular framework and according to a particular order. And the blessing and the beauty is that when that framework and that order is understood and rightly applied, it results in a, a great symphony of voices, male and female working together, multiplicity of harmonies. Yeah, about three-part harmony, four-part harmony, five-part, six-part. How many of you remember take six? They schooled boys to men. Let me just put it like that, because some of you are still working, trying to take six. Was it a dice or something? Like, yeah? They schooled boys to men. And when you talk about six-part harmonies, now that's an all-male group, right? I was thinking, just as I was getting ready to come up, what groups are there that we could say are really distinct singing groups that were both male and female together? Five star, you know. I said singing groups, you know. <laughs> you was quick off the mark, sis. I give you that. You was quick off the mark. But that really weren't quite the category, the caliber that I was really considering, you know. <laughs> Manhattan transfer. Hmm. That's a, that's a little more of an obscure one. Anointed, woo, for the sake of the call. I mean, you know the, the, the big tune. Listen, Anointed's first album, Spiritual Love Affair. Classic. You don't need to go on Google. Sounds of Blackness. You see, now when you start talking like that, you're talking bigger groups now, isn't it? It's not like a, that's a choir, really. So, Andre Crouch and the Disciples. So we're, we're, we're kind of picking around, and, but they're not like as well-known as obviously the individuals or the all-male groups or the all-female groups. And I wonder why that is. I don't know. But I believe that God's desire and intent is that the church would be, uh, I was going to say bisexual, but that don't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's not unisex. Um, like male or female? Let's just <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not. It's not unisex because it's not like just one that kind of goes. It's it's both working together. Someone's gonna give me the phrase. Dig me out of that hole. <laughs> that the church would be. A, 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 a symphony of male and female voices in harmony to the glory of Christ Jesus. What a beautiful thing that would be. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful prospect that is. Now as we come to 1 Corinthians 11 in this book where Paul has been talking to the Corinthian church, which is a Roman colony, Roman colony, a pagan environment, and he's been talking to the church, and he's been having to correct a multitude of issues. 
I mean, he lays out the glorious cross of Christ in chapters 1 through to 4. The foolishness of preaching the gospel being esteemed over the wisdom of men. He brings home the, the gospel and clear doctrine. And then from chapter 5, he starts to dig in. He rolls up his sleeves and starts to correct issues. So there's sin named among you that ain't even named among the heathens. What are you going on with? And he says to the Corinthians, deal with the issue. The offender that's among you, unrepentant, don't keep them in your company and, and tarnish and soil the name of Christ. They're unrepentant. You know what you do? Put them out from among you and glorify Christ. Chapter 5. Chapter 6, he talks about the issues of sexuality and sexual promiscuity. He talks about believers going to law against one another. He's correcting wrong behavior that stems from a wrong view of who we are as God's people, who the church really is. In chapter 7, he deals with the issue of marriage. And he's like, okay, look, these are the priorities in marriage. If you've not got the gift of singleness, then get married. And he portrayed the gift of singleness as an exception to the norm. He's saying, look, you know what? I wish that you were all like me, but not everyone can take that kind of focused and diligent commitment to keep themselves in this way. And so he expounds on marriage. In chapter 8, he talks about how the, Christ, the, the Corinthian Christian church engage with their culture and maintain their testimony in not dealing with foods offered to idols. Again, another corrective issue. In chapter 9, he speaks to them with regards to the giving of their substance towards the missional endeavor of the church. Giving financially. And he talks about the right attitude and the right way in which to do that. In chapter 10, he reflects on the experience of the children of Israel and what we're able to learn from that and then underlines the fact in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Learn the lessons of the children of Israel and don't give yourself to idols. And at the end of chapter 10, he makes this statement in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, for those of you who are familiar with your Bible, is this the first time we, we, we hear, or the only time we hear Paul make a statement like this? No. Not at all. You see, Paul, in several references in Colossians and in Romans 11, as I'll ask you to turn there and have a look, and verse 36, 
he recognizes and esteems the glory of God as being our chief end. So what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Where does that phrase come from? It comes from what's called the Westminster Catechism. And a catechism was a way in which back in the 16th, 17th century, they would school people in the doctrines of the faith. And it was like a question and answer type experience where they'd say, what is the chief end of man? And the respondent would be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And with each of the statements as you go through the, the catechism, there are corresponding scripture verses that provide reference to understanding why that is the right answer. And so in Romans 11 verse 36, we see, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The artist Shailin has got a new album, a Christian rapper. And on the album, I think it's a second song in or something like that, he's got a song called, Not to Us, But to God Be the Glory. And the punchline, it's, a, it's like a tongue twister. He takes this verse and he delivers it double time. And even as I was coming in, I was just reflecting on that tune as we were entering into getting ready for this text and thinking, for from him and through him and to him is everything, surely to God be the glory alone. And he says it probably about twice, if not three times as fast as that. And I'm like, what a beautiful thing to have as the punchline to your song, the chief end of man, in a way that is so catchy, so memorable, and for those who like to sing along with songs, so challenging to learn. If you're like me, you like a challenge. And I still haven't got that one down. So maybe a couple of weeks, by the end of the series. <laughs> After they give me some false teeth. But for from him and through him and to him are all things. Surely to God be the glory alone. Alone. In Revelation 4. It says, worthy are you, O Lord, in verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Newsflash. Contrary to popular opinion, it is God who made us and not we ourselves. We didn't spontaneously emerge from the soup. But God made us. Our very own heart and conscience testifies to the reality of that. And I'm sure that we're all here today because we have an appreciation of that to either a lesser or greater extent. That I'm made by God and my life exists for his honor and for his glory to testify to his power. 
Last week, Pastor Rob spoke of the fact that in the beginning when God made man, as in humanity, he made us in his image and his likeness. And the fall entered in, and we chopped it up at community group. The fall of man, when sin entered into the world, and the anatomy of temptation, we called it in our group. We considered the way in which sin entered the world and corrupted, shattered the image of God that was to be seen in man. And so now, like looking in a broken mirror, it's a fragmented and distorted appearance of what God ought to look like in us. And yet through the cross and resurrection of Christ, we are redeemed and we've been regenerated. And we now have been given the capacity by God himself to reflect his image anew, individually and corporately. And we see God made man and woman in the beginning. He made man and Having made man and assigned him his task, he then took woman from his side. And they were the first people. And we recognize that as man and woman were created, Adam's first realization was, this is my woman. That's the paraphrase of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is my woman. And God presided over the first wedding at their first meeting. You could call it love at first sight. And so we see that the first people created in the image of God with the mandate to glorify him, they fell Sin came and shattered that image. And so now it's a recurrent theme in Paul's writings when he speaks to us about glorifying God, being restored to the purpose for which we were made. You were made to glorify God. That is the sum total and chief priority of your existence. To reflect the image of God. Some people have a hard time thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I don't know what to do for a living. I used to work in careers. Work with people all the time. Struggling. I don't know what to do with my life. Whether it's young people just thinking about what to you know, aim for. What to pursue. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I'm supposed to do, do law or do medicine. I don't know whether I'm supposed to do design or do music. I mean, I know what I might want to do, but then really and truly, the, the options of doing that are kind of slim and, and actually earning a living and uh, what's a person to do? People who have worked in a career for years and years, 20 years, 30 years, and then that career's disappeared? And so, you think about the death of printing with the invention of the computer. 
You think about the closing of coal mines and all of these different industries, especially manual industries where people had a sense of purpose. They had a sense of um, direction and a goal only to see those industries shrink and diminish and not know what to do with their lives. And yet the scripture says that our chief end is to glorify God. We were created by him, for him, for his glory. And hearing that over and over might begin to kind of incite feelings within our hearts of, well... What is it with God that is so egotistical? That he just has to be glorified so intently? I mean, isn't there aspect of any aspect of my life that's for me? Isn't there any aspect of my life where I'm supposed to seek satisfaction or, you know, to seek my, my own delight? Because sometimes glorifying God really goes against the grain as far as my life is concerned. Sometimes glorifying God requires me to do things or be someone that I don't want to be and I don't want to do. If it was down to me and my pleasure, I wouldn't do it the way he says entirely. And to some extent or another, we all have that issue in our hearts. Don't get it twisted. We all do. How do I know that? Because we all sin. Sin is the proud satisfying of self. Ultimately, I'm not going to do what God wants. I'm going to do what I want. We all sin, right? So we all have that issue in our heart. That's what happened in Genesis 3 when Eve was faced with a choice. Am I going to take this fruit and disobey what God said, even though I'm now doubting it because of the seed that doubt's been played in my, placed in my mind, but whew, it's good for food. And it's able to make me wise. Hmm. I'm going to be able to satisfy myself in a way if I take this fruit. But God said, mm. but it don't seem like God's going to satisfy me that if, if I do what God says, it's not going to satisfy me in the way that the fruit will. It's good for food, as if they didn't have enough. Every tree, you know, all fruit bearing. Every tree of the garden you can eat off. Enough. I mean, if it was a mango, <laughs> if you was here, <laughs> if you was here last week, you know why I said that. Then think of all of the other fruit that was in the garden. But no, the exaltation of self over God. And we all wrestle with that. And so when it comes to intently 
and consistently live into the glory of God, we are challenged. We're challenged with, are we going to do it God's way or are we going to do it our way when it doesn't suit us to do it God's way? And one is the glorification of God and the other is the glorification of ourselves. So Paul is intent consistently on reminding us this is for the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. In everything you do, everything, every aspect of your life, every decision you make, do all to the glory of God. So my first question is to you today, are you living for the glory of God? Are you living for the glory of... Is that when, when all else fails and you don't know what else to do, you know that regardless, I've got to glorify God through Christ Jesus. That ought to be our personal mission statement for life. To glorify God. And you see, the thing is, as the catechism says, when we give ourselves to glorify God, he gives himself to us and we enjoy him forever. And to have God is so much more than to have all of the world's riches. To have us attempt to satisfy ourselves with our puny little selves and our puny ideas, thinking that we can satisfy ourselves better than God can satisfy us. God is eternal. He's inexhaustible. He is awesome in every dimension i mean for god to satisfy us absolutely would blow our minds consistently so as we enter into chapter 11 we see a few issues highlighted here. So let me read from verses 1 to 16. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, sorry, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper, proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. Nor do the churches of God. Now this is one of them texts that people have probably often read and just been like, Why? Lord help me. I really am not quite sure what is going on here. I know what it seems to be saying, but can it really be saying that? We kind of think about it two minutes and then we move on. It's one of those texts that are not often preached on. Because flat, it's a troublesome text. I'm not even going to joke with you. This is a hard text to work with. And yet, it's the word of God and it's the full counsel of God. And so, there's something in there for us. There's something in there for our edification, for our encouragement, for our instruction, for our example. There's something in there for us. Now, the first thing I want to highlight is this. We see that at the center of the text, 7, 8, and 9, there's a, there's a clear sense of the priority and the purpose of this. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. And then Paul takes it back. And he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So again, we think back to last week and we realize that Adam was created first. And Eve was made as a helper suitable for him. Together, they possessed the image of God. And here we see that man as the first in the order of creation is being communicated as being the image and glory of God. And woman to be the glory of man. And so together there is glory. And together they reflect glory in different ways. All to the glory of God. And we know it's for the glory of God. Because 
In verse 12 it says, and all things are from God. Now remember what we read in Revelation 11. Revelation 4, sorry, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. All things come from you. And by your will, they existed and were created. Now that is the justification of why God is to receive and is worthy of glory, honor, and power. Because all things come from him. For from him and through him and to him is everything. Surely to God be the glory alone. So all things are from God. And with that we know they are for God's glory. And so man and woman in the intricacy and the dynamics of their relationship are to glorify God in the different ways that God has purposed, working harmoniously to the glory of God. Now, there's probably something else that you noticed as I read through that from this, which is the ESV version. Is there anyone that's reading from the ESV? Just put your hand up. Show me a signal. Okay. So for the rest of you that are not reading from the ESV, there's probably something that you noticed that was different, that I, a term that I use different to what's in your version. It doesn't say wife in your version, right? It just says woman. So throughout that whole text, if you're reading maybe like the New King James or maybe even the NIV, you'll, it will say woman. Is that right? That's what you see in yours. Now when I tell you this messed me up, Actually, the fact that I'm reading the ESV, and this is my preferred version of choice, generally, and I've approached this text, and it's the first time that I've really sought to look at this text um, to teach it, and so I've read it through in the ESV, and that's the first thing I noticed. The ESV is speaking about the wife, every wife. The head of a wife is a husband. I'm like, hold on a minute. Doesn't that change everything? Hmm. So, why is the ESV using the word, the word wife and husband in those instances? And what difference does it make? Why is the ESV using wife or husband, and what difference does it make to the point that Paul is getting at? Well, one of the clear reasons why, and one of the first reasons why, is because the word for wife is the same original word, the same Greek word for woman. It's the same word. And the word for husband is the same Greek word for man. It's exactly the same. And so when the translators have gone through the text and seen that word, they now have to make a decision based on the context as to what translation they're going to make. 
is the writer speaking about a wife or is he speaking about a woman? There's another text that has a similar issue and it's dealing with <laughs> the similar issue. The dynamics of the relationships between men and women in the life of the church with regards to public worship. So flick over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll look at verse from verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2 from verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women, notice, women, so we've had men and now we've got women, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman, again, woman, I like that, learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not put, permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now can you, as we've read through that, see the general similarities between the two passages in the way that it's dealing with the dynamics of the relationship between men and women in the life, the public life of the church. And yet in this chapter, where it's the same word for woman, and it's the same word for man in the original, it's not translated husband and wife. It doesn't say, I desire that then, in verse 8, that in every place the husband should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that wives should adorn them. It doesn't say that in the ESV that I'm reading. And so I'm thinking to myself, whoa, this is dealing with a very similar type of issue. And it's using different terms. And yet it's the same writer of both letters. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote 1 Timothy. So, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Why wife? Now there's something in the context of 1 Corinthians 11 that over the years commentators as they've wrestled with this text and come to understand more and more clearly what is it that's motivated Paul to write this and what is the point that he's getting at that's, that has helped them to appreciate that the use of the word wife is appropriate 
at certain places in this text. One of the things you realize if you're looking at the ASV, it doesn't have the word wife consistently right through verses 1 to 16. The word is used interchangeably. And one of the things that has helped Bible scholars to understand more clearly what points are appropriate to use that word comes from an understanding of the culture that existed at the time of Paul writing. Now, before I get into that, let me say this. We recognize that Paul's making a point here. It's a point that isn't obvious to us in our culture. Especially today. It's a point that's not obvious to us in our culture. And that's because our culture today is very different to the culture that was at the time of Paul's writing. Evidently, the, the Corinthians who first received that letter existed in that culture and it didn't really need much explanation to them because they understood exactly what he was getting at. And so one of the first principles of faithful Bible interpretation, they call that hermeneutics, that's the, that's the title that is given to the art and science of rightly interpreting the Bible. One of the first principles is, what did it mean to the original readers at the time? Not what do I think it means to me now, what would it have meant to them at the time? And if I can get some clarity as to what it would have meant to them at the time, then I can understand how it best speaks to us now. And so, a lot of work has been done in understanding the culture of the time. Now, recognize this, as I mentioned. Corinth was a Roman colony. It was a highly commercialized, highly cosmopolitan environment that was um, deeply affected and influenced by Greek and Roman culture. So the Romans were the ruling power of the day, but the Greek culture was the prevailing culture of the day in terms of the way people lived their lives, the ideas that they kind of embraced, the styles and the values and so on that they had. The Romans were good logistically. Roman roads, Roman baths, spas, so on and so forth. They were good logistically, but they didn't have a strength of culture that could have overcome the Greek way of life. And so they called it a Greco-Roman culture. Now, one of the things that helps us to understand wife, is it appropriate, woman, husband, man, is the issue of head, the head. The term is used several times, and it's the focus of the verses as you go through verses 3 to 16. And the word head is used interchangeably. At some points, it refers to the natural physical head on the end of our necks. Growing up in school, I was always 
It's funny. You know how names kind of, kind of just attach themselves to you, innit? <laughs> These days, anywhere I go, at any given time, for whatever reason, people that I don't even know, they will refer to me as big man. Now you'd think that's not kind of like hard, right? Looking at the size of you. Certain brothers like to call me an ox. But as I was growing up, in my family, amongst my, my um, relatives, I was often called Big Ed Boy. And now they wasn't talking about me as a Big Ed Boy being a proud individual. <laughs> this is a Big Ed you, he's just full of himself. No, they was talking about me having a big head on the end of my neck. And I don't know, it's, it always was a mystery to me just the way these names, like, they, they find their attachment. But as we look at the text, we see that in certain occasions, Paul is talking about the literal head. And on other occasions, he's talking about head in the sense of authority. He's talking about head in the sense of authority. So, for example, in verse 3, we would understand that. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So he's talking about order, structure, and authority that flows from the Godhead into the life of the church. It goes on in the next verse to say, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. The word head is used twice in that verse. But obviously, each occasion has a different meaning. Now, just for the sake of time, this verse is referring to a man's hair. Yeah? This verse is referring to a man's hair. And we see that confirmed in verse 14. In verse 14, it says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Now, the, word, the first use of the word head in verse 4 is speaking, the Greek word means from the head, that which hangs from or flows from the head. So it's talking about long hair. Culturally, there was a significance there. Culturally, you know they say actions speak louder than words. How much of our communication is nonverbal? Would you say it's more or less? More of our communication that we as humans engage in is nonverbal. Actually, 75 to 80% of our communication is nonverbal. We communicate more without words than we do through the words that we say. And so, what's being addressed here is what is being communicated through your appearance? What is being communicated? And within the culture, a man with long hair was regarded in a few ways. One, potentially homosexual. Straight. I'm telling you, well, no, he wasn't regarded as straight. <laughs> but he was regarded as homosexual. 
at worst, at best, uh, a lazy, good-for-nothing, vagabond kind of guy. So you kind of, in that, that last definition, get the sense of the way people looked at hippies back in the day with their long hair and their long beards, and they were just frowned upon. These unkept, lazy, good-for-nothing wanderers. And so within the culture, there was a sense of that being the perception of a man with long hair. And even in this country, you go back like 50 years, you know, unless a man had a nice short back and sides and was clean cut and shaven, it was regarded as kind of like below par. So this is one of the things that within their culture was understood. Likewise, the other symbolism, the other thing that was communicated by, a, by hair in the life of a woman was that she was a respectable woman. That she was a respectable woman. That she was a woman who was not endeavoring to give the appearance of being sexually available. That she may have even been married. And furthermore, to, to go on and a step further, it was common that in those days, those women who were respectable married women would often veil their head as an additional significance to the point where the veil by some historians was regarded as a type of um, symbol of the married state in the way that a, a wedding ring might be for a woman today. And so something was being communicated by the individual's very appearance. And in that, we see the Paul addressing men in that regard and addressing women in that regard. Now, another cultural um, norm, another cultural norm during that time, and it was emerging even more so, was this. Women would shave their heads as a symbol of liberation and freedom. The fact that they were not um, entwined or um, under the oppressive rule of men, whether that be husbands or otherwise. One of the things that accompanied women with shaved heads or was common amongst women with shaved heads is that many of them would be what's called temple prostitutes. And so within the temple and just outside Corinth, there was a, a huge temple where prostitutes would come down. And these were temple prostitutes. So they were like regarded as priestesses of the temple. And they would come and entice men and allure men to have sex as, a, as an expression of worship to their deity. And one of the means by which they were identified was the shaving of the head. And so they were cultural norms of the day. And the long and the short of it is that Paul's saying, look, your appearance communicates something about your attitude towards one another and toward God. Now, when we hear it in those terms, that don't sound hard to understand, right? 
Because even today, we would recognize that there are certain norms that we would associate with being appropriate within, among the people of God, in terms of our appearance, and certain things that we would say, as we come together as the people of God to worship, especially if we are engaging um, in, in contributing vocally to public ministry in any way, there's certain things that, that ought not to be so. We'd, we'd, we'd maybe agree that, right? <laughs> or maybe some of us would struggle. You see, back in the day when I was growing up, the, the standards that were set were, woman must wear hat and must not wear trousers. C-H-O-U. And that was a culture. So if a woman came into church wearing trousers and not wearing a hat, she would be kind of looked at at the corner of the eye and be like, hmm, she must need Jesus. That's, that was my experience growing up. Let alone if a person would wear a hat in church. If I come in wearing a hat in church like I'm wearing now, Lord have his mercy. Those norms extended to even hairstylings. So there was the time when I as a young man was going with the kid and play look, if you believe it or not, high top, short back and sides. Ah, oh, those were the days. <laughs> Parting like a runway, just... Only to have my deacon greet me at the, at the door. Son, your backslide? <laughs> now, those things were based on, obviously, a misunderstanding of the text and man-made traditions. And as we spend more, in time, more, more time in the text, we mature and we grow. And yet... Ultimately, we see this. There is significance about our appearance, particularly in the ways in which we, what it communicates about our attitudes towards one another. So Paul here is saying, look, women of God who are contributing vocally, you notice in verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. So he's talking about a vocal and visible contribution to the life of the church. Now, next week, we'll talk more about that vocal contribution. Because a woman is making a vocal contribution to the life of the public worship service of the church. Hmm, that's another issue in and of itself. We'll begin to clarify that. And yet he's saying, look, it's to be done in the right way. You're not supposed to be standing up there looking sexually suggestive, sexually alluring, and provocative 
to be looking flirtatious because it's inappropriate. It communicates a disrespect and a dishonor for God's order of creation and the image of God that's to be glorified through your life. Culturally, people will be confused. So the unbeliever comes in amongst you and sees you looking like that, up there contributing vocally and visibly, and they're confused because they hear what you're saying, but they can't understand it because of the way you're looking. And so there's a clear message to us today with regards to how we as men and as women communicate our submission to the Lordship of Christ and honor and glorify God in our, as in our appearance as we testify and as we vocally give affirmation of such things. Christians, unbelievers are watching you. Unbelievers are watching me. And the reality is that our actions speak much louder than our words, including the way we dress. And Paul is highlighting the fact that, look, whether you understood this or not, whether you knew this or not, again, it's another point of correction. He's saying, this ain't good and this ain't right. Fix yourself properly. Having your head shaved, as a and this is in the time, I know that there's a resurgence of this head shaving thing. Does it communicate the same thing? Well, maybe to some extent, maybe not. That's not my point today, head shaving today. I'm talking about head shaving back then in the first century, Greco-Roman culture. It communicated sexual promiscuity. It communicated sexual availability. It communicated a defiance of submission to male authority. Whether husband, because married women were doing this as well. There was a strong women, women's liberation movement. Feminism was on the rise in the first century there. And this was being embraced not just by the temple priestesses. Note is given to men also. Within their culture. It was regarded as a disgrace for a man to have long hair. And so that being a cultural norm, what Paul is saying, don't send mixed messages. Verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is what you're to imitate. Don't imitate the world. Okay, so that's where you're coming from. But realize that you now need to conduct yourself as a Christian with a clear and unconfusing testimony before the world from which you came. 
And so be sensitive to the cultural norms and don't be confusing in your witness. So for some ladies today, that might mean, you know what, I realize as I hear this, I feel convicted that I need to kind of address the way I look. I'm not about to say, okay, ladies, this is the new instruction from the elders. When you come in as of next week, you must be hatted or you will be hatted. We're not saying you must wear a hat, but even amongst ourselves, we know and understand when certain things are culturally inappropriate or risque. Likewise for the guys. We need to consider this also. Now, I could get specific right about now. And should I? Do I need to? See, I don't, I don't look at it as the fact that, you know, obviously, we're big people. And we're not going to be condescending and speak as if it's, it's nursery school. But the word of God stands and it speaks. And it speaks to us all. And so, recognizing that God has, in the order of, cre of creation, set a precedent through which the man and the woman functioning and living in order, in harmony, is to glorify and reflect the image of God. Let that be our goal. Let that be our focus. And in doing so, be sensitive to how we go about that. So as not to confuse people as we aim to glorify Christ. Not to send mixed messages. Amen? Okay. So next week we'll revisit this. <clears throat> having kind of unpack that and begin to appreciate some of the other dynamics that are being communicated here as it leads us into second um, into first timothy chapter two dealing with the same issue thank you lord